0: Hello again and welcome back, or if you're a new listener, welcome to Blue Cow Red Cow Podcast. Each month we will deliver you interesting interviews and thought-provoking commentary from university researchers, veterinarians, and producers, all on the topic of cattle reproduction. Last month we were able to sit down with Dr. Paul Freke from the University of Wisconsin, and in part two of this interview we were able to discuss heifer fertility and some upcoming research projects that Paul and his team will be tackling. So without further ado, let's tune into part two. I'm Nick Isles and thanks for joining. If we switch gears a little to take the focus from the, from the dairy cows, uh, heifers seem to be the lost animals on, on a dairy and um, there's probably a lot to be gained there, not only through sort of genetic merit, but, but making sure that we actually have a protocol, because I'm not sure many, many dairies really have, have focused on a lot of heifers what is an ideal protocol from your perspective to to getting heifers pregnant?
1: Well I think I think I've been pushing on a couple of different things and one of the major things that has really changed over the last I would say several years in the dairy industry is the amount of sex sorted semen that's being used in heifers um, and that plays a role in some of these recommendations but the, the, the major factor in a heifer rearing system or a heifer breeding system is minimizing days on feed, and days on feed is minimized by when you get the heifer pregnant, and so the more efficient you can be uh, the more days on feed you're going to save and that is a tremendous amount of uh, money that that a farmer can save. And the other thing that I would say is that now we have pretty good protocols to synchronize to do time-day ice in heifers, it's a five-day cedar sink program, and it ends up that in a five-day cedar sink program use of sex semen looks a lot better than once daily tail chalking. So I've been kind of pushing people to think about especially if I'm going to be using sex semen that has a, you know, $18 premium per straw, I might consider setting these these heifers up uh, for 100% synchronization for first breeding. Breed them, come back, and do a second or third breeding, and by the time you've inseminated the animals three times, you probably have you know, 85-90% of them pregnant. And so it's a bit of a different way of thinking about it, um, but I think that's probably where things are going to start moving.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned their uh, days on feed, so you, you don't necessarily have to um, cut back on uh, the age that you're breeding these animals. You don't want to, to breed your heifers uh, too soon. What, what in your mind is the sort of ideal age or is it is it really sort of um, body condition of the animal
1: or percentage of its uh, full, full it's, growth it's weight? It's percentage of mature weight and um, you know it's like 65 percent of mature weight and so um, I, I think the challenge with heifers is you have to grow them if you're gonna breed them earlier you have to grow them to that, that weight mm. and that can, be, um, that can be a challenge the long-standing recommendation for breeding heifers is, or calving them out, would be uh, in that 22, 23 months. Right. I know a lot of farms that have tried to push that down further, but to push it down further, you have to, you, you have to do the calculations. You got to grow them uh, fast enough to get it that that, much, that weight. Mm. And I think you know you can breed heifers early and get them pregnant but you start to hurt their lifetime milk production. Yet. Right, in the long term. In the long term, and yeah. so it's, it's a balance, right? And so, so I kinda, I'm a little more conservative on the side of uh, you know, making sure that heifers are grown correctly. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are things I think that you see in the mature animals. You see those in the second lactation animals and things like that where you see problems, the mm-hmm. sophomore slump, those kind of things. I think you have to go back and look at kind of some of the heifer-rearing things that are going on and whether that's done correctly.
0: Yeah, so the other aspect to that is thinking of when you're going to breed your heifers. What about um, dairy cows? I mean, now we've got conception rates, you know, in the mid fifties for you know a, a double off sync or, or a well um, executed precinct sync off sync program. What changes have you seen in the in the voluntary wait period, and you know what a, what effect is that actually having on the on the industry?
1: Yeah, voluntary waiting period. It's um To to really do a good job in trying to figure out the answer to that question, you basically have to run some kind of statistical models to look at these kinds of questions. There's numerous papers that have looked at this, and the consensus among them is that if if I could get a cow pregnant at any time I wanted, then I would want to be somewhere in that 110-day range. And so uh, what's happened now is since we've been able to increase fertility, and because on a fertility program we can get a hundred percent of the cows inseminated within a week at the end of the voluntary waiting period that people have been moving that voluntary waiting period out and that was that's something that was unheard of you know 20 years ago you had 50 40 day voluntary waiting periods because we had low conception rates and we had low service rates so um i think you know getting somewhere in the 70 to 80 day range uh, with the voluntary waiting period it gives a lot more space probably the, the limitation uh, there is just the uterine involution process if you I think a mistake people used to make is on these fertility programs they would breed them too early, and so I think getting them out in that seventy day to eighty day range is a is a better place to be
0: mm-hmm. and you know the the early heat Heat breeding. I mean, is there such a thing as too early in, in some of these programs? Oh, uh, you mean breeding breeding cows, cows too to heat to I estrus mean to estrus? Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. Okay. So that's a good point. If I, you know, the voluntary waiting period question really depends on my strategy for first insemination. So if I'm 100% timed AI on a fertility program, I want to be out in that 70 to 80 day range for the first breeding. If I'm using a pre-sync off-sync with cherry picking. And there are farms that do this. And cher- I want to be cherry,
0: just, so, just so we are all clear. Cherry picking, being breeding to
1: estrus off that second PG. Exactly. Um, you want a 50-day voluntary waiting period because now, now you're back. You're kind of at the mercy of the cow, showing estrus or not showing estrus, and so you have to get started earlier. So I think de- you know designing. Um, a repro management program. The first question you really should ask yourself is, what is my strategy for first insemination? And once you get that nailed down, then you can start to select the voluntary waiting period and, and work from there.
0: Excellent. So, what's next for you, uh, Paul? I mean, what sort of uh, research? I mean, I think um, you know the research that I've seen you uh, produce. You, you've systematically gone through the various nodes of physiological advancement on these uh, reproductive um, programs from the first service to resynchronization pushing adoption more sophisticated programs that, that have a higher efficacy where's the next point of of impact for you? What's, what's the research leading towards?
1: So I kind of I would categorize the research I do as more applied stuff that you know someone can just pick up and use right away uh, in the field, and then you also have kind of a basic side of, of your research program. You're asking kind of questions that that uh, are more physiologic that may lead you down a road that eventually would be applied that that aren't. So I like to work in both areas, and in my applied side right now, I think the the transition to uh, sex semen use in lactating dairy cows and heifers is is an area that we're we're really looking at. I've got a grad student who's working on that. We think we might be able to optimize timing of insemination using uh, sex-sorted semen. Um, so that's the, the, the practical side. On the, on the more um, basic side, I would say, uh, Dr. Wilpink and I um, are gonna, the next big hurdle that we wanna try to tackle is this pregnancy loss issue. Um, we think that's kind of the next rate-limiting step. We've been able to improve service rates tremendously. We've been able to tremendously improve uh, fertility uh, but, but the pregnancy loss side is, is an interesting uh, one to tackle and uh, we have some ideas and, and we're, we have a project, some projects that we're working on that are they're focused on using uh, IVF embryos transferred into heifers, non-lactating heifers, as a model because they have about twice the rate of pregnancy loss that we normally see to an estrus. So, Sometimes, when you study these things, you have to have prevalence high enough to where you can actually impact it. Mm. And so that's kind of where we're starting with that.
0: And what is the prevalence of, um, of reabsorption? Is it uh, is yeah. otherwise known?
1: So I'll correct you on the reabsorption. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, <laughs> people talk about reabsorption, yeah. uh, and the uterus just doesn't suck them back up, right? Okay. Every pregnancy that happens that is lost is expelled. So they don't just get resorbed, they actually do get expelled. Uh, the prevalence is it's a good question and um, obviously there's a lot of things that can cause pregnancy loss. There are diseases that can cause pregnancy loss. I was in a situation in another country where pregnancy losses were over 30% and that was due to an infectious disease, Q fever. Okay, so there are infectious diseases whether it's BVD, Q fever, uh, some of the venereal diseases that are out there that can have tremendous impact, impacts on pregnancy loss mm-hmm. and sometimes that's what people think about with pregnancy loss. What we're looking at is pregnancy loss that seems to be not related to those diseases. And a big issue that we've come across that that I think is a bigger issue than we ever imagined is the twinning thing. Um, We can manipulate uh, progesterone during these protocols. I can increase double ovulations and twinning. And when you increase um, unilateral twinning, you, you increase pregnancy loss by threefold and depending on how carefully people are looking for twins at the first preg check, that can play a big, uh, a big role in how much pregnancy loss they're seeing and they don't even associate it with twinning because they're not, they're not looking for that. But having said that, typically um, when you talk about pregnancy loss, it's hard to measure because you have to do a first preg check and a second preg check, so when you do those matters. And um, what we've seen is that uh, between a first preg check at around day 32 to a recheck around day 61, that pregnancy loss is somewhere in the 8 to 12% range in, in lactating dairy cows, and heifers is lower mm. than that. There's also other things we've looked at with regard to early pregnancy loss, and these we've done this in a number of different studies, so for example, we can look at when does the CL regress in a non-pregnant cow, and there's a lot of these animals we found uh, in one study of the cows diagnosed not pregnant at day 32 had extended luteal phases. So they had the same CL that they started with, but the uterus was empty and almost all those cows had measurable pregnancy associated glycoproteins. So my point is that there's a lot of early pregnancy loss that's happening in these dairy cows before we even establish in the field that they're pregnant or not. Okay, so there's this whole spectrum of loss. There's this loss that happens due to maybe fertilization occurs, but they just don't continue to develop. Or they they signal that the corpus luteum is maintained around day 18. They extend that luteal lifespan, but then subsequently lose that pregnancy. So these are all different things that we've looked at. Uh, in different ways, and then of course there's loss that happens after day after the second preg check between day 62 and calving, mm. and there is some some loss that happens. Generally, it's lower at that particular point in time.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like there's a, there's a lot of opportunity for some upside there if you can tackle any one of those areas. You mentioned there a particular hormone that circulated, progesterone, the pregnancy hormone. You've done a lot of work on uh, progesterone as well, in particular just prior to the sort of fertilization so what what are some of the things that if you could summarize in lay terms to me what would they be around what do we know more about progesterone now?
1: Yeah so progesterone is uh, is, uh, is a steroid hormone produced by the corpus luteum in the cow uh, as you said it's the it's the hormone of pregnancy it's progestational um, a lot of the work that we've done has been in manipulating progesterone and kind of seeing what happens And so I go back to kind of Dr. Wilbank's overarching hypothesis, and his hypothesis is that the high-producing dairy cow is essentially metabolizing uh, progesterone in the liver uh, because of high feed intake and blood flow, the way the blood flows through the body. And so what the the overall hypothesis is, is that the high-producing dairy cow, we've altered that endocrine environment. She has subnormal levels of progesterone. And progesterone affects things like LH pulses, the way the dominant follicle grows, the oocyte quality, for example, whether they select one or two follicles. There's a lot of things involved with progesterone. So we've done a lot of kind of targeted, again, these kind of basic experiments that no one would want to do out in the field, but just to try to understand that better. And so, for example, one of the studies that we just finished and got, it's it's accepted for publication in the Journal of Dairy Science. I can make cows double ovulate. I can make them have an increased risk for twinning mm-hmm. by manipulating mm-hmm. progesterone during growth of the synchronized follicular wave. And um, so those kind of things to a physiologist are kind of very exciting because you start to understand how the system works. And if you can make cows double ovulate and twin, maybe by increasing progesterone, we can decrease it. Mm-hmm. So so there, those are kind of the ideas that we have. Uh, how these things happen and how we can manipulate them. And that's really, when you talk about a fertility program, it's really about manipulating progesterone. We want progesterone to be you know, kind of at mid-levels when you start that off-sync protocol. We want them to be as high as we can get the progesterone levels by the prostaglandin, and then by the time we give that last GnRH, we want progesterone to be as low as we can get it. And what we found is that if you aberrate that at different times, you start to see strange things that are happening mm. in, a, in a dairy cow whether yeah. they double ovulate or twin or or whether they just have low fertility, whether you mess up uh, gamete transport, there's all kinds of things that can happen.
0: Mm. So one of those um, those studies that was I think it was uh, Bruvincene in, in 2009 and then later by Wiltbank in 2014 was that extra shot of PG on a day 8 to an off program and that's to reduce the the corpus luteum. So obviously that's crashing out those levels of progesterone.
1: Yeah, so that's an interesting story and and so I would take a step back and I would say the rate limiting factors affecting fertility to an estrus are different than the rate limiting factors affecting fertility to a synchronized breeding program. Because we're manipulating these things, the factors are, are quite different. And so kind of the story that I tell is double off-sync, as a protocol fixed two major problems with the precinct off sync program. One of them is that it, it helped overcome the anovular condition. About twenty-five percent of cows aren't cycling. And so combining generation prostaglandin as a precinct method will get those cows cycling. So it overcomes that problem. It gets more cows to exactly day seven when they start that second off sync which is everything synchronizes better but the story I tell is by fixing those two problems we created a new problem and the new problem is that when you set up so many cows to start off sync exactly on day seven you set them up to have to regress the CL seven days later with the prostaglandin that's right when the CL is acquiring luteolytic capacity particularly in the older cows and so we did this kind of with a with a, a a blood sampling technique, so we we would look at progesterone at that last GnRH and it was very clear there was a group of cows that had progesterone hanging around that shouldn't have been indicating that they weren't regressing that CL and so so the solution for that was to add a second prostaglandin. When that second prostaglandin was added that was really the thing that turned the double-opsing program or say a G6G program into what we now call a fertility program Mm -hmm. because then that was the last rate-limiting step and then, then we just saw uh, tremendous increases in fertility, particularly in these older cows that had lower fertility anyhow.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that uh, across your, your tenure pool as well that you probably would have seen a lot of is a change in technology, and in particular, big data. How do you see that playing out in the future of managing dairies and decision support?
1: Yeah, I think big data is... Um, Obviously, every researcher would love to get their hands on big data, and um, being able to look at large numbers of uh, animals and, and whatever you're looking at. So I think big data has the ability, maybe, to transform the way that we approach some of the problems that we see. The amount of data being collected on dairies uh, with animals that you basically milk three times a day, you can can measure things in milk you can measure things we have all kind of sensing devices that are on these cows now I just think that that that's going to be an exciting area in fact in our department now we've just hired a new faculty member whose whose title is basically um, you know kind of a big data type of a data analysis type Mm -hmm. of thing so I think that holds uh, holds great potential I think the interesting questions now in agriculture are who owns that big data John Deere wants to sell everybody equipment on their combines that harvests all kinds of data. Well, does the farmer own the data? Does John Deere own the data? Those kinds of things. I think those are the kinds of legal questions around big data, uh, and we're, we're all touched by big data. You know, Anybody that has a cell phone that uses, uh, y- uses an Apple phone or an Android phone, you're giving your data away free to those companies, and uh, so there's data privacy issues and all those kinds of things, but the things that we can do now with that big data. Uh, are pretty convenient in our everyday lives so it's, it's a real interesting area that we're moving towards and I think it's going to be exciting to see where that all goes.
0: So if I was to be uh, starting out in the dairy world and uh, to go and purchase a dairy what three pieces of advice would you give me in particular around fertility management because obviously there, there's plenty of uh, things to, to be concerned about on operating a dairy but what what three things would you say to focus on with fertility?
1: Well, I guess the way that I kind of go through and talk about this is, um, at least when I go to a dairy, I ask a couple questions when I when I look at their program. The first question is, "What's your plan for first insemination?" And what I would tell you is that there are different plans that work. Okay, so I'm not here to say there's just one single plan that works because I've seen dairies be successful. I can tell you there are plans that don't work, for sure, but um, put a plan in place to get the cows inseminated for the first time, so that's step number one. Step number two is once you get that step number one in place, the next step is simply when do you identify the cows as far as which ones are pregnant versus non-pregnant, and what are you gonna do to aggressively re-inseminate the non-pregnant cows? If you can, if you can get those two steps in place, then you have a good reproductive management program. So so that's just kind of the program, the strategy, so on and so forth. I think the other big thing, again, in my mind that I'm seeing as, a, as an issue in the industry is the health of the cows is huge. Opsync, these fertility programs don't fix mastitis problems. They don't fix necessarily um, body condition score problems. They don't fix uh, facilities problems. And so I think we've, the proto- programs and protocols have been so successful, we have dairies that now are running 30% preg rates. Then you get another dairy that says, well, we're using the exact same program, why aren't we at 30? And they want to change their program somehow. Okay, so that's kind of a misplaced way to go about this. What they really have to focus on is what is it that's limiting the health, uh, uh, health of the cows.
0: That's great, thank you. Well, look, we've come to a conclusion. I I do have to ask you one more question, which is really around your preference around dairy products. What is your favorite dairy product?
1: Well, being from Wisconsin, I've got to say cheese. So you're a, I'm a cheese head. You're a cheese head. I'm a cheese head. I've been <laughs> in Wisconsin long enough to wear any particular we type of cheese. We got some cheese. You know, whoever looked at a goat. And said, "I'll bet you can get milk out of that thing, and we could make really good cheese out of it." Was a genius because I love some of the some of the goat cheeses. Some but, of the feta. feta oh i uh, no! Yeah. Just some of these. Yeah, I mean, goat cheeses that they come up with are. Heck, I'm just into kind of just the cow cheeses as well. All, all that, all that kind of stuff.
0: Very good. Well, Dr. Paul, thank you very much. Uh, for speaking with me this afternoon it's been very insightful and for those uh, that have listened in and haven't heard of the dairy extension I encourage you all to, to find your local extension great resource to find people like Paul and again thank you very much
1: you
0: bet. Thanks for listening to part 2 which concludes our interview with Dr. Paul Freke. we hope you've learned more about cattle reproduction and the new areas of interest for Paul and his team More interviews are on the way. Be sure to subscribe to our blog at bluecowredcow.com so you can be updated on all things cattle reproduction. And if there's something new that you want to share, be sure to reach out and let us know. Again, my name is Nick Hiles, and from all the team here in the head office at Kansas City, we wish you a wonderful day. Happy milking.